everyone. Um, my name is Laura Keim. I'm going to be the chair of this session today. Objects are complicated too. And I'm joined today by um, first Jessie McLeod. She's an associate curator with George Washington's Mount Vernon. And David Vocal, who has recently taken on a new post at Maymont in Richmond, Virginia, where he's the senior curator and director of historic preservation. And um, I recently learned in a, a, a earlier session today that my activist style is to be a contributor. So I hope that this is um, a contribution that you'll all enjoy to this conference. Um, and the title is really born out of our thinking t together that history is complicated, people are complicated, and objects are complicated too. And as our field moves into an audience-centered, an idea-centered way of operating, um, we just want to be sure that the objects aren't also left behind in this process. So each of us is going to talk for no more than 20 minutes to leave adequate discussion time um, for you to, to really weigh in. And hopefully we can dig into some of the questions that our material, our thinking um, might raise. So in 2008, so now a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, Jim Vaughn cautioned museums to be aware of the tyranny of collections in his rethinking the Rembrandt rule. As we as a field have grappled with the idea that some objects are more untouchable or touchable than others, and that people really do need to connect to objects, sometimes physically, for them to be meaningful and relevant, um, we've shifted the way we operate very often in historic sites and museums. More recently, um, Trevor Jones, Rainey Tisdale, and Elizabeth Wood challenged the museum field to come to terms with our hoarding tendencies and take up the notion of active collections, keeping those objects that are tied, um, it, retaining objects as we look at accessioning, keeping objects tied to our missions and the stories we tell. Um, and to really think about how we allocate resources for object care and stewardship based on objects on importance to um, people, living people. Our session this afternoon will actually draw directly upon one of the Active Collections Manifesto statements, making the good stuff sing. So don't shoehorn your objects into an existing narrative and rob them of their power. So part of what's complicated about objects is the many stories they can tell when we take the time to um, study and research them closely. So just a little bit of kind of the, the basics back to um, the good old material culture approach. How do we access objects? And we need to ask questions of them, take time with them, associate them with people, and understand where they come from. Um, asking those basic questions we all learned when we were writing papers in school, you know, who, what, where, when, why, and how. And we're trying to build context around them and give them that meaning and relevance that we all seek for our visitors. So we get to know an object and the lives of real people embedded in it by asking these questions, discovering the objects as well as maybe people's life stories. So here's that concern point again. As institutions, we may be so audience focused that we're not devoting adequate resources to studying objects to actually keep them alive and active. And when all the voices are equal, what happens to expertise? How do we balance the input? 
And now I'm really going to show my age. And, um, <laughs> and actually, some of these white ones aren't showing up so much. And some of you in the room, I know, know these things very well. Um, but back when I was in graduate school, Charles Montgomery's points of connoisseurship were one method that we were taught to get into an object and, and look at it and judge it as well. Um, but I would argue that there really are 14 plus points of connoisseurship. And one that's really left out, and I've been finding in my own work recently, is this kind of use function. Um, you know, he talks about function, so it's a sort of subset of function. But one of the ways that we can bring a lot of objects to life in a historic site like I curate that has a story of enslavement and servitude is asking that question, who might have moved and cared for this object? Who might have polished this object? Um, so it's some, somewhat our, our presentations today are really about broadening our own conceptions um, and thinking beyond maybe biased or racialized notions, our own imaginations that we already take with us when we see things. So that top didn't show up very well, but it says, what is the colonial revival? And so just to set this up a little bit, I think a lot of our institutions, whether they were formed 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, like the historic site that I work for, or even in recent years, um, have a kind of colonial revival mindset. And I would argue it's still something we live with, but that this idea may be on the wane. And this may be part of why we are all struggling to make things um, relevant. So the colonial revival is a nostalgic, commemorative, and celebratory cultural movement that to greater and lesser degrees has been part of American culture since before the War for Independence and has continued. So myth-making about our founding has been going on since um, the 18th century. Maybe you could say you're founded and you start myth-making almost right away. Um, all the way up to sort of I more recent ideas like the Naughty Pine Kitchen <laughs> with its little L hinges and um, naughty but nice uh, appearance. Um, that top there also says recipe for the colonial revival, 1876 to ongoing question mark. So you put in a little bit of old buildings or furnishings. There has to be an E on the end. Um, so you're collecting the colonial era and the past. Um, genealogical connections like to a colonial ancestor, the idea of native born peoples, nationalistic or patriotic sentiment. We're all seeing this in um, all over the place these days. A little Anglophilia thrown in for the original culture. After all, the colonials were English. And some anxiety about waves of Eastern and Southern European immigrants. So take all these ingredients, maybe buy, get yourself a historic house, collect, furnish, play, enjoy, and find comfort. Um, and I just wanted to remind you all that the colonial revival is said, you know, thought to have really taken hold here um, in Philadelphia at the Centennial Exposition. So just a few more images that show how um, this sentimental kind of collecting um, goes on. This is the tall clock, clock becomes the grandfather's clock. There's this kind of glorification of the past um, and a distinctly kind of female domestic nature to the colonial revival as, rel as well as an emphasis of kind of craft techniques and old things as handmade um, and just ever so sentimental. So here, for example, would be um, some of the early colonial dames opening Stenton in this height of the colonial revival. But who do they celebrate and worship? 
a man. So the, the, they're, it's a ladies' organization um, with some ancestor hero worship going on. Um, and the early furnishing of the house as it evolved, this is kind of about 1912, and um, the gentleman I just showed you was James Logan. These dames are already interested in collecting Logan family objects and have this settee that's now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, on loan to the house. By mid-20th century, they're doing the kind of Williamsburg winter tour decorating style, and taking it closer to the present, um, this idea of looking at how um, this historic house fits into the entire context of the Atlantic world and you know, really investigating um, its, early, its uh, family history, family collections, and diverse inhabitants. This was a, a plantation house, and um, despite his uh, Quaker membership in the Society of Friends, James Logan was a slave owner. Some more recent parts. So, if any of you are coming on the tours in Germantown tomorrow, you'll see some of these things in person. And so, just to to give you a couple of recent projects, and I think kind of the way I feel about historic sites is that um, we can still do decorative arts, history, and study objects to tell stories, um, as well as at the same time we can look um, inside objects to understand. Um, connections to kind of less well-told, less well-known stories. So these are chairs that recently came into our collection um, that belonged to a man named George Emlin. And in fact, you can't really make it out from the distance where you are, but on the rear seat rail, they're branded GLE, which sort of amuses not General Electric, it's George Emlin. Um, but we've been now really focused over the last year and a half through a grant from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage on rememorializing Dinah. And Dinah would have known those chairs in her childhood when she was um, growing up in George uh, Emlyn's household before she came um, to Stenton with George Emlyn's daughter as, a, um, as dowry property. So not dissimilar from what was kind of happening to Ona Judge. Um, but in 1912, she's memorialized on a plaque as the faithful colored caretaker of Stenton, so not unlike a kind of faithful slave narrative. Um, and we got ourselves into thinking about this because we took on, um, in 2018, stewardship of a 1939 James Logan memorial that had been in the basement of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And um, so in a way, for Stenton to go deeper into really telling its story of slavery, this, this monument, the, um, coming to the site has been sort of the moment that we've been waiting for. And now I'm going to turn it over to, to Jesse. Thank you, Laura. Um, and I feel fortunate that our Dr. Dunbar um, laid the groundwork so nicely <laughs> for my talk. So those of you who are there, um, I'll be touching on, on some of those same themes. Um, Let's see. So as surely all or most of you know, um, if, if from nothing else, your eighth grade school field trip, Mount Vernon is located on the Potomac River, about 15 miles south of DC. It was the home of George Washington for more than 40 years. Oops. Oh, did I lose a slide? Well, there is an infographic. 
Well, what was supposed to be here is an infographic showing you that um, Mount Vernon was also home to more than 550 enslaved men, women, and children, including 317 of them who lived there in 1799, which was the year that George Washington died. And I did have an infographic that is part of a graphic in our exhibition, which shows those 317 individuals compared with about 20 hired white servants and about six Washington family members who were living there in that year. So you can see that they made up more than 90% of the residents of the plantation. And that you know gives us pause as we think about whose stories are we telling in this place. So uh, similar to Stenton, uh, Mount Vernon was founded by a group of ladies. Uh, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association purchased Washington's home in 1860 and immediately made it a public historic site. Uh, they raised $200,000 through a nationwide fundraising campaign in order to purchase the property. And Mount Vernon is still operated by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association today, so we still have an all-female board. Unsurprisingly, the Ladies Association was comprised of white, wealthy, well-connected women. In the early years and you know, a bit beyond that, Mount Vernon was effectively a shrine to George Washington. Visitors came to see his home, to see his tomb. He was the hero who was being worshipped. This did eventually begin to change over the course of the 20th century. And by the 1990s, slavery was a pretty integral part of our interpretation. Things were starting to shift. Uh, there was a lot of staff research on the topic. We started opening up some outbuildings that really looked in detail at the lives of enslaved people. But for the most part, um, it wasn't really a, a full part of the site's narrative. It wasn't integrated into the story we were telling. And I just quickly want to uh, talk a little bit about our structure. So we do have a historic house and outbuildings that visitors can go through. We also have a museum where we have exhibits and gallery spaces. And today I'm going to talk about a project that we did in the museum space. But I think the lessons that we learned are really relevant to the historic house setting as well. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that um, in the Q&A. So this is a case from our, our new museum, which was uh, built in 2006, which is the first kind of large-scale museum space that Mount Vernon had. And this is the slavery case, as it was called. Um, it was the only space that really talked about slavery in that 4,400 square foot museum. It had a couple archeological artifacts, a couple objects, a handful of manuscripts. And when I started in 2012, I was told that previous staff had a really hard time finding documents to go in this case. Fast forward to 2016, and we opened this exhibition um, called Lives Bound Together, which is entirely focused on those who were enslaved at Mount Vernon. So our goal was to illuminate their experiences, show how they faced bondage with resilience, resistance, and creativity, and also show how their lives were deeply interconnected with the lives of the Washington family. So um, needless to say, we have a lot of material on slavery. There are literally hundreds of documents that relate to slavery, if not thousands, many of which are featured in this exhibition. But this was a really interesting exercise to see how we could use our collection. We didn't really make any new acquisitions to map this exhibit. So we were able to use our existing collection in order to tell new stories. And specifically, 
today I want to talk about a strategy that we used, which was employing our decorative arts collection to talk about uh, narratives of slavery. And of course, that wasn't all that we used. I'll just quickly um, say, oh, here's the infographic. <laughs> it, got, it got lost along the way. <laughs> um, oops. I don't, my slides <laughs> seem to be kind of out of order. Um, but we um, had a number of archaeological artifacts. We've had some amazing excavations at the sites of um, slave quarters and outbuildings and the mansion, which illuminate uh, the daily lives and personal experiences of enslaved people. We also had an oral history project that we developed in conjunction with the exhibit. And that came out of a partnership with the descendant community with whom we worked throughout the process. They were really integral partners for us. Um, so oral history and archaeology are, are things you think of when you think of an exhibit about slavery, right? And those are critical because they provide, um, they, they are resources that really show the perspective of the enslaved and, and their private and personal lives. So uh, I'm not discounting the importance of those types of objects, but I do want to talk about how we can use these objects that are in pretty much every collection of a historic house, right? Even historic houses that maybe don't have an archaeology program, don't have a robust descendant community, they have these types of objects. They have a teapot, right? So um, I wanted to think about how we can use these objects that everybody has to talk about some more complex and difficult narratives. So. Um, these are kind of three strategies that we developed um, in looking at objects, kind of thinking about um, that 15th point of connoisseurship, how can we, what lens can we use to look at these objects to, to bring out some of these different stories. So I'm just gonna go through these um, pretty briefly. The first um, is, um, again, my economic context, <laughs> sorry, um, my title got cut off. Um, so looking at the economic context of some of some of these objects. And these are all things from Mount Vernon's collection. They had all literally been on display in our previous museum installation, which was a very traditional decorative arts gallery. And these, of course, are all associated with sugar and rum and sweetened beverages. And they're often touted as evidence of the Washington's wealth and their elegant taste. And they were collected over the years, of course, because of their association with the Washington family. But we, have, we, of course, wanted audiences to think about them a little differently. We wanted them to think about the fact that sugar was a major engine driving the slave trade, right? It was produced through the labor of captive Africans who were toiling in brutal conditions on Caribbean and South, Amer South American plantations. So when we look at this beautiful Chinese export porcelain punch bowl, which had previously been interpreted as something that Martha brought to the marriage, evidence of her wealth. Um, we should also consider the pain and suffering that went into creating the beverage that it held. And above the punch bowl, I have a quote from a description of a sugar plantation in Barbados that describes the horrific conditions that enslaved laborers endured there. And we have that quote on the label immediately below the punch bowl. So when visitors are looking at that bowl in the exhibition, they, they can't avoid that description of the violence that is really embedded in the story of, of that object. And this economic context question is not, um, uh, it's not just abstract, 
right? It's Washington himself very specifically is embedded in this, in this story. Um, he, his main products at Mount Vernon, harvested with enslaved labor, of course, were flour and fish, and he sold both of those to markets in the West Indies. And he, at times, used the proceeds, as he describes in this letter, to purchase enslaved people. Here, he is requesting that the proceeds from his sale of flour go towards purchasing enslaved men and women, and he describes the qualities that he would like in those laborers. We also know that he occasionally sold enslaved people to the West Indies. So um, uh, one example is Tom, who is uh, an enslaved field hand. He attempted to flee Mount Vernon. He was recaptured, and as punishment, Washington sold him to the West Indies. And this is an excerpt from a letter from Washington to a ship captain. And Washington's asking the captain to sell Tom on one of the islands and in return to bring back a hogshead of molasses, one of rum, a barrel of limes, all of these Caribbean luxuries. So when we're thinking about the story of these objects, we have to think about someone like Tom, too, right? So this silhouette, I'll point out on this page, is one element that we used in the exhibit to create a human presence in the galleries in the absence of period imagery of enslaved people. And we have 19 of these conjectural silhouettes spread throughout, and we wanted to place them in conversation with the objects that really help us illuminate their stories. So this is an image of the gallery um, where the silhouette of Tom is located. You can kind of see it on that wall. It's in front of a, a map of the world, and then the case to the right has those objects, including the punch bowl and sugar bowl and so forth. So the next strategy I wanted to talk about is daily use of objects, and this is what, what Laura was alluding to earlier. Um, so instead of who owned this, we can think about who touched this, right? Whose hands touched this object, and what stories can we tell from that history? We know that in the interiors of the Mount Vernon mansion, there were about a dozen enslaved men and women who were assigned to work. Um, we, uh, their presence and their contributions, of course, have so often been ignored, erased, placed in the background, kind of uh, emblematic um, of this, this group portrait by Edward Savage of the Washington family, where you see um, the enslaved man in the background as a symbol of property, a symbol of wealth. Um, and um, so often, you know, that's, that's how enslaved people have been portrayed in historic sites. They've been in the background or really not discussed at all. And a good metaphor for this is actually a series of drawings by Benjamin Latrobe, who visited Mount Vernon in 1796. And he created this sketch in his sketchbook of the Washingtons on the piazza. And as you can see, there is a black man standing behind Martha Washington and he's probably meant to represent Frank Lee, who is the enslaved butler in the Washington's household. But uh, what's interesting is that in the final presentation watercolor of this scene, that figure is missing. Latrobe removes him entirely. And I think that's 
kind of symbolic of how the presence of enslaved people in the daily lives of these wealthy families has really been erased both in the time and also in interpretation. So what we wanted to do in the exhibition was really reinsert those individuals into um, these scenes. And here you can see the silhouette of Frank Lee, who um, we've placed next to a vignette that's sort of recreating Latrobe's um, uh, uh, scene on the piazza. And in a nice inversion, I think, he's the only figure there now. So he's the focus. He's the central, um, the central character in this story that we're telling. And I'll also note, Latrobe had a diary as well in addition to those sketches. And it's amazing the passive voice that he uses. It's, um, you know, dinner was served, coffee was brought, my horses came to the door. And just as a side note, I think, because it's related, we have a whole text panel where we kind of deconstruct that language and we can identify by name the people who are probably doing those tasks. So kind of making the invisible visible, making that labor an active part of the interpretation um, was something that we found really effective. Um, and finally, I wanted to talk about provenance. So we found some really unexpected things when we started looking into the provenance of some of the objects we were putting on display. And um, excuse me. examining um, the provenance of this Windsor chair, um, which was donated by Mary Gibson Hunley, um, as I said, revealed some surprising things. So none of us had known who Mary Gibson Hunley was. We were checking the credit line as we were getting the labels ready to print, and somebody was like, wait, <laughs> do you know who she is? And we realized that in addition to being a graduate of Radcliffe and the Sorbonne, a really accomplished educator and a civil rights activist, she was a descendant of the Syfax family, which was one of the most prominent enslaved families at Arlington House, which was the home of George Washington Park Custis, Martha's grandson. And that site is run by the National Park Service. It's on um, the property of Arlington National Cemetery today. Um, so Mary Gibson Hunley was the great-granddaughter of Mariah Syfax. Um, and Mariah Syfax is widely believed to be the daughter of George Washington Park Custis with an enslaved woman named Ariana Carter. And in the 1820s, Custis had made arrangements to free Mariah Syfax and her children, and he gave them a pretty large piece of property um, near Arlington House. And Hunley had actually stated in her, um, in the correspondence related to her gift, that her grandfather, William Syfax, had actually rescued the chair from Arlington House during the Civil War when Union soldiers were occupying the property. So this chair actually has this fascinating history. And before, it was just sitting there <laughs> like any old chair. And because we were, you know, it was kind of serendipitous, and now we'll be extra careful to do this. Um, but because we kind of took another look, we were able to uncover this really fascinating story. And we actually have a similar story with another Windsor chair, um, this one, an armchair, where it was purchased by a board member. So the credit line actually didn't really reveal anything. It was the gift of a board member. But again, when you look into the file, you see that that board member had purchased the chair for $100 from an elderly African-American woman named Lucy Harrison. 
And we know that Lucy Harrison was the daughter of Caroline Branham, who was an enslaved housemaid at Mount Vernon. And in a familiar story, 19th century sources suggested that Lucy Harrison was also the daughter of George Washington Park Justice with Caroline Branham. So these two objects, these two Windsor chairs, interestingly enough, um, which, as I said, had not been displayed in any particular way. They were just used as kind of generic furniture that had been at Mount Vernon. They're actually embedded in these really powerful stories about, you know, um, the complexities of race and, and family and ownership in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I'll also note that we're in, we are in touch with descendants from both of those families, and none of them had known that their families donated those chairs um, or sold those chairs, had owned them at all. And so we were able to share that with them, and that was incredibly powerful for them to feel that you know their families had contributed to the collection of Mount Vernon, and this was a piece of their family history. Oh, there are my slides from before. There's some archaeology. <laughs> There's some oral history. Um, so hopefully um, oh, this has shown you that you don't necessarily um, have to go out and get new objects. You can use the objects that you have in your collection. If you feel like you don't have the material to interpret a topic like slavery, you probably do. You just have to ask different questions. And I do want to say I, I think that mining existing collections can be really effective and is really important. Um, but I do think it's also important to build collections that represent diverse viewpoints and, and showcase you know, different aspects of the story, not just through enslaved people's relationships with their enslavers, not just through their labor, but also on their own terms. So doing something like this doesn't negate the need for those types of collection building efforts. But I think this is a really great first step in something that's pretty accessible um, for any site to do. So with that, I'll hand things over to David. Hello. I just want to start off and um, sort of put it in context. Um, I have just recently switched positions uh, this spring. So when I signed on to do this uh, with Jesse and Laura, I was going to really focus on my work at the Valentine Museum in Richmond, Virginia. So um, I'm going to start with that, and I'll end with kind of the work I'm doing right now, um, kind of early days um, at a Gilded Age house museum called Maymont. And I, I thought I would um, look at um, an exhibition when I was hired at the Valentine, um, it's a city museum, and it's a place that is sort of known for its collections. Um, it's an old museum. It's one of the earlier collections in the country, uh, founded in the 19th century by the Valentine family, who were um, industrialists. They made something called Valentine's Meat Juice and went on to become quite successful uh, from Valentine's Meat Juice. And it allowed them to become generations of collectors. And the Smithsonian of the South is a term that was often applied to uh, the Valentine Museum in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, so when I arrived there, it was an embarrassment of riches, over 1.6 million objects in a very small um, <laughs> institution. So I mean, there were objects everywhere, duplication, triplication, quadruplication. Um, and I was tasked immediately, the, the day I walked in the door, uh, to come up with an um, exhibition 
that would um, be uh, a showcase um, for the collection and the fact that we were entering into a major renovation, which was going to mean striking the entire museum and putting everything into storage, and um, it was going to be the sort of last hurrah. So I was handed a list and said, these are our top objects. I mean, how many of you have had that experience? Um, and it's like, and I was, says who? Uh, who decided this? Um, and um, I was the curator of the general collection, and uh, we're known for our costume and textile collection. At the time, we didn't have a specific curator uh, for that. Uh, we do now. And then, of course, the archives, library, uh, manuscript collection, and the photography collection. So who in the room has seen uh, Ken Burns' uh, The American Civil War? Everybody. <laughs> How many of you noticed in the credit lines that a lot of images came from the Valentine Richmond History Center? A couple of people, thank you. <laughs> and uh, so it's this amazing collection that many of you know, but would never know to trace back to the Valentine. And the object side of things, um, from my mind, was really coming in and saying that the role of history sites and museums is to interpret the past and the present. And we most often do this through objects. That's sort of what we are trained to do um, at school. We tend to love objects. We tend to go into this work as public historians. Um, I'm a child of not one, but two collectors of Americana. So I thought that was normal, that everyone grew up in a household, being in a rope bed, um, <laughs> where you woke up an inch lower than when you started off the night before, um, as the ropes loosened up. And it actually, made me fall in love. Um, living in an 18th century house with collections, it made me fall in love with the story about objects because as a child I would go with my parents and go to estate auctions and you'd see these things coming out of households after 100 or 200 years and that broke my heart. I was like, why are they letting go of this? And, and my parents were assembling and, and curating their home and so coming into a general collection as I was at the Valentine, I had that kind of broad knowledge base. I loved everything from 1950s toys to 18th century silver. And the Valentine has all of that. Um, and so the, these objects um, that we in museums choose to put out um, are very powerful signs and symbols. We know that as public historians, um, we have the ability to be in control of that message. We decide as curators. Um, and I was quoted in, in my first show there um, at the press, history is messy. And it's not an original quote, I found science. Um, I was watching a documentary and a, and a woman said the same thing. And I thought, these are my people. So, you know, history is incredibly messy, um, particularly in the South, um, in a city like Richmond, which is the capital of the Confederacy. And the American Civil War was a story that um, my predecessors and, and, and uh, my director you know, very much wanted no part of. And I was like, history isn't neutral. Um, it's not passive, and, but it is relevant. So we need to embrace that through our objects. So I came up um, with this final exhibition um, and before the renovation, and I thought, okay, I don't want to do the best objects. And so I really set myself up for um, pain and heartache um, by saying, you know what, we can do something bigger than this. Um, we need to really mine this collection of 1.6 million objects. Um, and again, as a new curator, it wasn't a collection I knew. Um, and we didn't have a really cracker you know, um, database. 
So it really, really me going into storage and, and mining the collection, opening cabinets, looking at drawers, pulling things off shelves, um, running back to the object files um, to look things up and to see if it had a story. And what I kept running into is often there was nothing. The, the file existed and there would, might be a deed of gift, but no one had collected the narrative behind that object. Why is it here in the museum? Someone chose to bring it here. And I think that's probably the same in all of your collections. That someone brought those things there. Did the museum actually capture that story at that time? And if not, how do we go back and find a story? So um, I had, had gone to university in England, um, you know, as uh, I think Laura mentioned earlier, many, many, I think people in American history, we turn back to our Anglophile roots. Uh, I certainly did. and. Um, and I worked uh, for the Bath Preservation Trust. And while there, I, I sort of fell in love with Radio 4. And so I've been sort of following that through, you know, the last 20 years. And this amazing program happened um, in the, um, around 2008 um, on uh, uh, BBC Radio, which was the history of the world in 100 objects. And if you haven't heard those podcasts, um, you, can access, you, you can access them now. And it was a, a, an object a week sort of a scenario. And um, Neil McGregor, who was the, then the director of the British Museum, um, was pulling 100 objects out of this amazing British Museum collection. And I thought, what a great thing. And it was never an exhibit. Uh, it actually became one in 2016, sort of after I did my show. It, it, they did a kind of a traveling show of some of the objects from the book. But I'd received the book as a, as a birthday present in 2011. And it was sort of on my bedside table. And my director uh, had a love affair with New York and um, came back um, from um, you know, being in New York. And there was an article in the New York Times about a New York museum that was doing this amazing exhibition um, you know, using objects from their collection and very much an homage to, to the um, Radio 4 program. So I'm like, there's no new ideas, you know. So imitation is flattery. Feel free to borrow from other institutions. So I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, I want to do RVA 50. And I had about five months to do it uh, from beginning to end, which is, I don't recommend. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but I said, I'm going to open on Valentine's Day. Um, it was sort of a hard opening. And my museum, the Valentine Museum, always steered clear of Valentine's Day. It was like a no-go area, you know, people thought we were the Museum of Valentine's. We'd get calls all the time. And so that shows like this idea of, you know, we don't have a George Washington, um, we didn't have a Lloyd, you know, we had an industrialist um, who no one remembers. <laughs> so we became the Valentine Museum. And so um, I thought, okay, 50, I can do 50 objects. I can't do 100, I don't have the space, the time, um, but I can do 50. And, you know, I started just doing the research. And again, as a new curator, it wasn't like I was coming to the table with years of reading behind me. So I turned to the published articles um, very quickly, you know, um, going online. And I came up with a list of 80 important events in my city, in the city of Richmond, and created a spreadsheet. And from that 80, I had to narrow it down to 50. And for every inclusion, automatically there's an exclusion. 
and you, you have to look at your bias as a curator. You have to look at the politics of your institution. Uh, that was certainly um, very relevant in my case. Um, everyone wanted to curate my show. Um, everyone thought they, they, they could curate this. And, and what I learned from that was like, I could do this show 100 times over out of our 1.6 million objects. And if I had done the show a year or two later, I would have done a very different show. It would have looked the same, but it, I probably would have had 50 different objects. Um, time is useful when it comes to knowing your collection. Um, but I was really careful about the inclusions and the exclusions, because you have to think about the stories that you are including. How do you create balance with your objects? How do you tell the stories of the untold? Um, what do you do when you don't have an object to tell the story that you wish to tell? Um, these are all kind of questions that came up and needed answers as we began the, as the process. And you know, it really helps to be a list maker, which I am. And you, know, you have your kind of curatorial wish list of, of what you want. Um, do you have it? And I just come off a project at Jamestown Yorktown Foundation where we were telling the story of the entire American Revolution where before it had been the story just of Yorktown. So we have that same scenario. We don't have the objects to tell the story that we want to tell. What do we do? Well, you, you beg them, you borrow them, you buy them, um, and you find them. And so I just come out of that experience. I was really comfortable just kind of going into this collection and, and trying to find something very plausible and using the collections database, um, physically exploring the collections, what catches your eye going through storage, uh, going through exhibit existing galleries. Um, where are the kind of potential candidates? Um, and then you realize that each object doesn't have just one story to tell. It, it, there are infinite numbers of stories to tell, depending on how you look at it. Um, and you just have to unleash those stories. Give yourself the freedom. Um, so by creating the object spreadsheet, uh, this was sort of a savvy political move on my part uh, <laughs> because everybody had a, an opinion on my show and I was new. So the director who I adore um, loves objects and he, he, it's like, you start with, you're, so you're gonna do 50? Well, and then it was like, it's, it's gonna push it. And then suddenly it's like, well, you need to, you need to have X in, you need to have Y in. So it came down to what do you want to take out? There are 50 slots, no more, no less. And so by luckily doing that, I was able to kind of keep control over the larger you know, project um, in the short time we had. Um, and because then you could negotiate in meetings and saying, all right, I'm happy to drop something out if you, wanna, if you think that Robert Lee's boots need to be in. What, what are we going to sacrifice to get those in? And what I found is like, people backed off very quickly, actually. Um, and that was nice. And um, you know, sort of creating the, this idea of, I don't want it to be a text-heavy exhibition. I want the objects to speak for themselves. Um, and you know, wrote a brief introduction that really sort of showcased the importance of the Richmond History Center, the objects, um, the collection, what it's known for, but not often seen. You know, 1.6 objects are never seen and rotated. Um, the Valentine historically tended to use the same star pieces, exhibition after exhibition. People knew that. So I was very careful to kind of steer clear of things that people had seen before. Um, I was also keen on being just a little bit provocative um, and, and telling the story of, 
of a, of a person, but maybe not using the object people would expect you to use. And that was the case, um, just an example um, at the Valentine was Bill Bojangles Robinson, the performer. Um, and we have this banjo. But the banjo had not been conserved. Um, it needed time and money that we didn't have either of those two luxuries at the time. But everyone assumed you're going to use the banjo. Well, I looked into the collection and, and found um, a pristine 1936 uh, Ivy Toy Company Shirley Temple doll that had belonged to a Richmond girl. She was a child of the Depression, so she never played with it. And so it was still like factory condition. Yeah. And of course, um, Shirley Temple broke the, um, you know, the interracial barrier by dancing with Bill Bojangles Robinson on film. And so that was a pretty important milestone. So I was able to use that object, and people sort of walked up to this thing they thought was very kind of benign and almost kind of saccharine, and then read the label. And you could just see them, you know, just kind of the shock of reading the label, talking about Bill Bojangles Robinson. And I was really kind of proud of that. Um, so have fun with your collection. Um, I give you the permission to do that if you're not doing it already. Um, and you know, people would come up to me at the opening and question me about the object choices. And it was actually a lot of fun to have a, um, very meaningful dialogues with our members, the public, our, um, over the run of the show. Um, and giving people a chance to um, realize that you know, we're telling objects through things. That is what we do at a history museum. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so, you know, I started the arc with object number one and actually put uh, numbers on the labels um, in a kind of a shadow gray uh, effect um, and created a bookmark of one through 50. And, and the object ranking was by uh, time. So my earliest object was um, the John Smith map from the early uh, 17th century. And this was um, an early 19th century Richmond strike of that, uh, first printed in Richmond. And then I brought that narrative through to my final object, which was the gay pride flag that flew at the Federal Reserve. And this had been collected just months before I arrived. And it was massive. Um, you can't tell from this, but it, it, you know, you can imagine this flying on the Federal Reserve. You imagine the scale of this. Um, and that was a very powerful object. Richmond is a very conservative city. Um, and the pride flag had flown all over the country at federal buildings, not a peep. They fly it in Richmond, it's on the national news. All hell breaks loose. So, um, you know, our director had gotten this piece, um, luckily before I came, and, and he was like, you have to use the pride flag. I was like, not a problem. You know, I intend to. I'm trying to figure out how to display it. How do you display a huge flag in a small gallery? So we came up with a solution, and, um, you know, I really left it with the introduction and the final thoughts. And I really just, and this is the text from the last panel, which is really looking at, you know, taking people on the journey from, you know, the John Smith map of Virginia through the pride flag, um, and how each object has an individual story. And that story um, depends on the individual viewer. So I didn't want to assume anything for my audience, because everyone brings their own experience to an object. And I think it's so important to um, let people have that moment and I was very conscious about the gallery itself. Um, you know, it wasn't in a historic house museum. It was in a, you know, a 20th century museum building. I painted the gallery white. Um, I went with a really contemporary design. You know, um, history museums tend to be brown and yellow uh, and sepia. 
And so um, I wanted to kind of shock people, and it was a 1970s building, so I kind of thought Jack in the Box, you know, um, I, you know uh, orange, white, clean, you know, contemporary. And that was a, a you know, a, a shock for my museum, because they weren't used to that. They were used to painting things green and brown and yellow. And so they actually liked it. Um, and what this did, this little temporary show that wasn't really meant to get legs and walk around, um, I had people coming, other museum people, saying, oh, I saw something online and I've come from Texas to see this. Um, I want to take this idea back and share it with my board. So that was a really nice thing. Um, I had a budget of $5,000 to do the entire show. Yes. Um, so, I mean, you know, and it, it shows it's possible. Five months and $5,000. And um, it was this idea of I knew I had some of the exclusions. And um, one of my paintings conservators said to me, she's like, you're crazy to do this show. You're going to be torn apart in the city to do this, in Richmond. You, you will, you, they will, you know, destroy you. It's like, thank you. <laughs> and um, just clean my paintings so I can go on the show. And so what I did is I created uh, a, a blank case, uh, which was the 51st object case. And I basically uh, created a label that encouraged people to go onto social media to suggest where the exclusions were. Where, what have we left out? What, what do you not see here in this gallery that you feel as a citizen of Richmond, as a citizen of the world, that we need to tell? And so that kind of took care of everything. And I just fabricated um, the little, what you see there is a question mark. And, and we let people vote, and through social media. And um, there was a, a family-run grocery store that had, that had been around for three generations and had just closed called U-Props. And I had not included, I thought about it, but did not include, um, because of space, a, a U-Props object. So that's what was voted for. And so I put out, um, Probably everyone has in your wallet right now a loyalty card <laughs> from your grocery store or whatever. So we had a, a UCROPS loyalty card. And so that became the 50, 51st object that kind of rotated into the case during the run of the show. And, you know, um, what did we learn? Um, you know, we learned a lot. The response to this object-driven show was incredibly positive. Um, they told me before I came that we usually get about 30 people to a gallery opening. We had over 300 for this show. And it, it was positive and lasting. Um, and the day after the opening, my director uh, came to me and said, you know, you're working the new core exhibit. Um, you, you need to make it look like this. You have my permission because we were struggling with the exhibit designers who wanted it to be brown and yellow. And, um, and so suddenly, you know, we were able to go back and uh, look at our new, so that same space where my little exhibit was, we were tearing down walls and creating um, in that renovation this idea. And so this becomes, this is the graphic. Um, and the goal was to, you know, really surprise Richmond. You know, Richmond, the conservative city. Um, they, they think they know their history, and they think they know how to display it. So we made this decision to kind of go with a much more contemporary aesthetic. Um, this is an early um, look at that. Um, I don't know how many of you struggle with your exhibit designers, um, but uh, I, yes, I do. Um, because, you know, you come in and you have ideas, and um, you have to kind of get them on board with your ideas. So this is as built. 
So you can see it's very object heavy. Uh, there are three main cases that you see that are quite large. And I left them uh, blank in the middle because I wanted light to move through the gallery. So that created all kinds of challenges of how do you hang a painting with creating a backing that creates another surface that you can put another object on the other side. Um, but what I loved about this is when you're standing in the gallery looking through the cases, you're looking at a portrait of George Washington and you're also seeing a whip from the Ku Klux Klan. You're seeing um, a piece of neon um, from an African-American restaurant. Um, and then another direction you're seeing a piece of neon from a, sort of a, a, a store that was segregated. Um, and so the, the, the um, playfulness of the objects, um, putting them together you know, in this box, this white box, um, and letting everything kind of have some you know, space around it was a lot of fun. And you know, you'd like to think you're like, oh yes, we planned this. Sometimes you just have these wonderful serendipitous things happen. And you're like, yes, yes, we thought that. Yeah, we knew we were gonna do that. <laughs> um, and, and then finally, you know, with objects, um, so many things that are history objects are small. They are light sensitive, they're fragile, and that can often be a reason not to put things out. Um, or they're lost in a big case, and that was a fear. So um, I created a hands-on history project and got some additional grant money. And um, in the original design, I wanted drawers, and you can see um, the drawers here. So case on the top, drawers below. And my exhibit company, God love them, they fought me every inch of the way. Like, building drawers was impossible. Um, and uh, so you can see they're possible. And, um, <laughs> and then we were able to work with something called the Virtual Curation Laboratory, um, which is at Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, Dr. Bernard Means. And uh, they were um, doing 3D prints uh, of archaeological material. And the Valentines were, um, the family, were big collectors of ethnographic material. And, and sadly, in fact, they were actually buying Western sites, mounds, and having them excavated uh, by professional historical archaeologists in the late 19th and early 20th century, packing all those remains and objects into Valentine meat juice crates and shipping them back on the railroad to, to Richmond. And so we went through a big process of returning and repatriating those objects, and we're still working on that. The human remains have gone, working on the uh, grave goods um, when I left. Um, and so we had things like arrowheads, which I'm like, all right, these are very neutral and, um, and interesting, uh, I think. <laughs> um, and so by doing the 3D uh, drawer project um, and the prints, we were able to uh, like couple original objects on one side and then have a balancing drawer that you could open up, and there were touchables. And it was inexpensive, incredibly effective. Um, and what I wanted people to do is I wanted them to literally physically delve deeper into the object story. And by giving them a drawer, it's like the most simple interactive you can come up with. Um, so if your site doesn't have great capacity for sustaining media and uh, tablets and these things that tend to break in museums, um, consider the drawer option for your objects. And it also took advantage of negative dead space that would have been lost in a case, you know, all that below that you just don't have. When, when you have 1.6 million objects, you're always looking for a home for things, and, and the more you put out, in, in a way, is better. Um, but yet, people could find their level of interest. They didn't have to look at all of that. You know, they could choose where they delve into the collection. And then I wanted to just land on the next chapter, um, which is, so based on my work with Valentine, um, you know, 
went, went, went through a number of different shows after that that were all very object-driven. Uh, my last show being a show on monuments and looking at the history of monuments in Richmond. And how do you bring nine foot, 15 foot bronze monument stories into a standard history gallery? Um, so I did it through a lot of media and uh, photography, but very contemporary. Um, and then bringing in things like maquettes, um, that where I was able to find uh, the plaster maquettes and, uh, and the tools used by sculptors like Edward Valentine, who worked on several of the Confederate monuments that were in our collection, because um, he was a member of the family. Um, we were able to do a nice object-driven show that was a nice balance with, with uh, contemporary media and footage. And so I was brought over across town to Maymont, which is um, a late 19th century, uh, gilded age, 100-acre estate. Um, it is considered to be very intact. One family lived there, no children. So when Mrs. Dooley died in 1925, her home became uh, a city park. And much of the contents were left. And, and historically, Maymont has been open to the public since 1926. And it's been telling a Gilded Age uh, decorative art-centric um, story. And I was tasked with um, really kind of blowing that story up um, and expanding it um, with the Jim Crow era story of, of labor uh, and, and the uh, black labor experience uh, here in central Virginia at that time. And no one else is really telling that story right now, so it's kind of our story, which is nice to own that. But it's a story that will need to be told through objects. And many of those objects no longer exist. They were disposed of by the museum in the 1930s. So many of the tools, uh, many of the domestic objects that would have been um, things like fireplace tools and um, coal hods, gone. Um, so the house is very uh, much has been focused on the decorative arts. So this is a really great opportunity for me, so I hope you'll all come to Richmond um, in the next few years and see the before and the daring and the after. Um, and I just want to sort of wrap up with a call to action to everybody in this room. You know, that as curators and public historians, we must challenge ourselves and our institutions daily. And I can speak to that. I have never been shy about, you know, kind of tilting at windmills um, internally and externally. Uh, I, just, I just think it's important to do. And so we have to think about what active role our collections are performing. Um, things tend to come to museums and be accepted, and then they die. It, um, the Valentine was a great example of that. 1.6 million objects, very few ever being utilized or seeing the light of day. Um, you know, are they supporting us in a way that's making relevant history, public history today? So, you know, these objects may have made sense 50 years ago, but do they still make sense today? And make they make sense 50 years from now? Um, we're all in a position to kind of help make those decisions for our institutions. I think they're counting on us to do that. Um, we were going through the Valentine, we were doing a very serious um, uh, refinement of the collection with um, accessioning many new things every week, but also equally deaccessioning um, hundreds and thousands of objects left in, in the seven years that I was there. And, um, and that can be kind of terrifying. But it was actually very liberating for the Valentine because we felt we were drowning under this inheritance um, of things that had come Rich, Richmond's attic. We had become the city's attic um, early on. And so if you 
had an obsolete object, you sent it to the Valentine. You had a painting of a family member that you didn't think was attractive, you gave it to the Valentine. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's interesting sort of looking at that. And we kind of you know, use those yardsticks of, is this Richmond? Uh, does it have a story to tell? Does this object have a narrative? Can we research it and give it a narrative? Um, is it duplicative? Um, is it better served somewhere else? Does someone else have a greater right to this object than we do? So we're able to transfer things back to other institutions who are grateful to get them. So all that's very positive. So um, look to your own collections to see, are there things that you need from another museum? Can you get them? Um, are there things you need to return to another place uh, where they will shine? Um, and can we tell new stories to the existing objects and our existing exhibits? Often we don't have the funds to, to do a, a full redo. Um, but can you rethink the current text? Can you write a new script? Uh, can you retrain the docents uh, to tell new stories by the things that are already out? Um, I think we can. So on that, I'm going to open it to questions. and we are being recorded this session so we're going to make sure that we answer in the microphones I'm reminding my <laughs> colleagues and um, we'll just be repeating your questions as well Okay, the question was about the Worcester Art Museum and they're recontextualizing the labels and the objects. And is this basically admitting almost a, a fallacy or a false, uh, fault in the past? And I think that's a really great opportunity to build on that foundation of the past. It's not stripping it away, it's in fact, it's enhancing it. And that's so critical because we look at the length of age of our institutions. Our galleries can be up for 20 years or more in some instances. Um, but society is always moving and changing. So I think the being flexible and, and owning new stories um, is important. Uh, um, encouraging the visitor to actually engage with that narrative or create a new narrative and post that on social media um, can be powerful. Um, during the monumental show that I mentioned, that I, um, my last um, show at the Valentine on the history of Richmond monuments, um, we created a, a post-it note wall. Um, it was actually doors, glass doors um, that looked out, and there were two questions posed about how does this, you know, how do monuments make you feel, and um, whose story do you feel is not being told. And it was really fascinating to see how people engaged with that and added um, to that wall on a daily basis. And you know, someone um, you know put up on a post-it note, you know, Donald Trump needs a monument in Richmond. 
And then this, and it, that post note kept disappearing. <laughs> and we're like, where did, where did the Trump note go? And then I finally found it. We find it like dropped behind the podium and then stick it back on the wall. And I finally found it ripped up in tiny pieces and someone had dropped it back behind the podium. So that's a really powerful narrative right there. You know, regardless of what your politics are, you know, we live in America, you have an ability to have an opinion and should be able to share that with your community. So I thought, okay, you know, we've taken this history of monument show looking at how monuments happen and it's become very current. They want to talk about the here and now. And, and that's the role of museums. And I think it's the same with the art museums, that you know, there's ability to um, have that same powerful interaction as we look at um, maybe traditional art. I know working in a gallery, Jesse, you have. Yeah, um, what I really liked about the what they did at the Worcester Art Museum um, in, in retaining both labels or retaining the old label and putting the new one next to it is I think it really emphasizes to visitors that, you know, museums are not neutral, have never been neutral, right? Those old labels that people often assume are kind of, you know, the received wisdom are just, you know, what the object is. All of a sudden we can question that and we can think about how that is coming from a particular perspective that reflects the biases and, and prejudices and privilege of the people who are portrayed in the portrait and the people who are writing the labels. And so I think that juxtaposition, especially as an institution, is just kind of embarking on this journey to reinterpret their collection. That can be a really useful tool. I would just add, I showed the image of our 1912 Dinah plaque, which in effect labels Dinah as a faithful colored caretaker. And um, we are going to be having a community discussion in, in October that will include neighbors and those around us weighing in on how they feel about that monument and that plaque and whether that language will go to the attic or we'll have a label, a new label for the label that explains that colonial revival context and, um, and creates understanding around it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add Mount Vernon has a, a monument that's almost identical to that one that was placed in 1929 that talks about the faithful colored servants of General Washington. And what we've done is retain that monument, but then we have a new monument, um, and obviously this cannot continue, it's not a sustainable <laughs> model, but um, we, have a, we have a monument that was constructed in 1983, designed by architects from Howard University um, with the input of descendants, and that one is very much a reflection of the community. And so the old monument is kind of off to the side. The main focus is now the new monument. And we do get comments about the language on the old monument. And there's probably more we could do to contextualize it. But um, that's another example of kind of these things continuing to exist in the same space um, side by side. Yes, in the back. Yeah, so there, 
the question was about how we unpack um, white women's roles in both perpetuating slavery and then um, within historic sites kind of perpetuating a privileged narrative. And um, in terms of Martha Washington, it's interesting. She She's very much in the shadow of George Washington at Mount Vernon <laughs> in general. Um, and we are exhibit, we really did focus on George Washington, um, but we do have, we did include information about Martha. We do talk about her role in pursuing Ona Judge. We actually think that she was probably the one who was pushing George Washington to continually, relentlessly pursue her um, because of her personal attachment. Um, and we do have a label that discusses Martha's views on slavery. It seems that while George Washington did become conflicted about the institution later in his life, Martha does not seem to have shared those thoughts. So we do, um, there's more that, that needs to be done, but we, we do attempt to address that in, in some ways. In terms of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, um, you know, it's interesting. They've continued to be an organization of, of almost exclusively white, wealthy, well-connected women. And um, I think, you know, to be frank, that has created challenges when we've tried to introduce topics that are a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more difficult. And I think we're kind of on a journey in, in trying to um, to unpack some of the assumptions and and the traditional views that that are really embedded in the structure of Mount Vernon. And um, I think we're slowly making progress, but um, you know, it's a long road, and patience is important. Um, but I think that that is a problem, and I think it's it's one that a lot of sites really face. Yes, here in the front. Right. Um, let's, question. Good question. So let's start with the um, objects for value. We need to repeat the question. Exactly. Oh, okay, and there was sorry. too much, so I'm just going to start there. <laughs> okay, so the question was raised, of, um, uh, three questions were raised, and um, I may actually repeat them um, directly into the microphone. But um, one question was about the value of history objects. And that was something I'm very aware of. And um, at the Valentine would say this very often, was is history collections, we, we invest the value into them. Unlike fine art, um, or even fine decorative arts. And 
in 50 objects, um, I did include uh, a, an Austrian uh, piece of art glass, which was something like you could see at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, you know, a few blocks away, um, any day of the weekend, it would have held its own. Um, but I included it because it was a wedding present to a woman who, who died uh, following the birth of her child. So that was the narrative I chose to tell. So when you walked up to this beautiful piece of art glass with silver overlay um, and beautifully lit, you could hear the angels sing as you saw this beautiful piece of glass and its many colors. And then you read the label and you walked away a changed person. Because what it did is it took you into women's experience in the early 20th century, um, that life could be short and brutal. And this object was treasured by her son, who she did not live to raise. And it was at his death that his widow donated the object. And you can imagine that she hated that mace because it would have been out of fashion during her life, would have been seen as old, unattractive, but it was powerful in the family. So she had to retain it and she couldn't just destroy it. So she put it in a museum. That is what Americans tend to do. We do it with our uncomfortable history. We do it with our unfashionable history. We do it with our obsolete history. So um, that was sort of the approach there. And remind me. Uh, I, I really was just curious about the, it seems to me that you have taken the approach that you're using objects as springboards to stories and, and not investing them uh, with the power to tell the stories on their own. Correct. Um, for a modern public, they don't, when the Valentine was created, there were no labels, and that's documented, very few. The people who came in the late 19th century knew what they were looking at. They did not need curation. It was a gentleman's collection, and it was for other gentlemen. That narrative changes in the 20th century as museums start to become places of education, and we start to create labels, and we, and we tend as historians to want to write long labels and tell people everything we know from our research. We've all been criticized by our colleagues for that, I'm sure. Um, and so it, it shows the sort of changing expectation of the public for museums and for history collections. And I liked, as I said, to be provocative by putting out an object that maybe doesn't have great monetary value, like a loyalty card. Um, that has zero, you know, resale value, but yet it has incredible power as an object to be, um, in that case, to, for people who missed the store, it was part of their life experience. They identified with that store as, as identifying with being a Richmonder. And, and when the store closed, it was like a death in the family for many people. That's how they described it, because it had always been there. And it's the place that made their birthday cakes. It's the place where you went to shop, um, and the family were part of the community. You knew them, you went to school with them, you went to church with them, they, they were family. And I, I never underestimate the power of the simple, the humble, the, the commonplace.
Bible because what really strikes me, especially as I talk to, uh, I look around and talk to colleagues who are working in contemporary interior design and fashion, um, the moment right now is really ripe for looking back and sort of plucking inspiration and actual materials um, from the past. Brown furniture is coming back tentatively. I don't want to jinx it by saying that. <laughs> Sure. So the question is about the colonial revival and um, its lifespan and ch kind of changes in its reception over time and where we are today. And um, I'll probably this is probably going to sound like I'm thinking a lot out loud because actually I've been thinking about this a lot and I still feel like I don't know if I'm really fully articulate about it. And some of my colleagues might have things to say too. But um, I think the colonial revival is a cultural, a visual cultural movement that has been around for over a hundred years. So we've all grown up in this colonial revival soup and that it has these kinds of elite undertones to it that were really exclusionary regarding immigration, quite literally the word object lessons, which at Stenton is actually what the colonial dame's ordinance from the city in 1910 says that they are going to preserve Stenton as, as a historic object lesson. And our um, school programs even still are very, there's a kind of noblesse oblige around the way we raise money from wealthy white people. And we also, colonial dames are well connected. Um, to educate underserved Philadelphia school children, and this has been very successful, but I've been doing a lot of just thinking around that model and how um, those donors and the people with those colonial revival values are literally passing on. And the relevance that we all struggle with in reaching people, I think, has to do with a younger generation coming up um, that really does look and say, I, I don't subscribe to, even if it's quiet, I don't subscribe to that vague elitism that those objects represent. They're collected according to values that no longer feel comfortable to me, given what I know. And so um, I think that's where we're struggling with relevance. But as we come out of this time period, as our culture really shifts, there may be a real opportunity, as you're exploring possibly at the Reed House, to really seal the deal on the colonial revival and say, it's the past. We're done. And these 
things come and you know have a long life. But if we're really done with it and we can really look at it, then perhaps we can re-examine those objects with um, renewed enthusiasm because we're not saying that we believe we what we think we see in them anymore. I hope that came out sounding like that made sense. <laughs> yeah, we are at time, beyond time in fact, so you're all free to go. <laughs> and I was meant also to remind you to fill out your pink forms, please. Thank you.